Our corporate gatherings are bathed in prayer, and I would like to continue in prayer. I know that we have already uh, uh, gone to him in prayer a couple times already, but I want to pray about something specific in these next couple minutes. I want to pray for those uh, victims of the tornadoes that hit yesterday, uh, just the uh, heartache that folks must be feeling right now, and pray that the church can be the church that if we have a need that's in front of us that... Uh, we need to walk in that we'll be mindful of that and attentive to that. And I also want to pray for another church in town and uh, their pastor. God, we, um, yesterday we had a, a, some folks had a front row seat, but uh, pretty much all of us are at least have an awareness of the um, terrible storms and the power that was unleashed through those storms and tornadoes and the damage And Lord, we want to lift up the people that have been uh, hurt, uh, families that may have lost their homes, um, people that may have died. Uh, Lord, we just pray for uh, a big general prayer for your glory through the mess. Uh, We pray that you would um, guide your church uh, in Canton, um, our churches in Canton and in and around Canton. Uh, and churches here in Greenville, possibly, if a need presents itself, to walk in this mess and to be salty, bright, and aromatic in this mess. Um, Lord, we pray that, um, just pray for your glory in it somehow. Lord, also this morning, we want to pray for another pastor in our community and another church. We want to pray for Kelly Reagan and uh, for the church at River Oaks. Lord, I'm I uh, just want to lift up this church after they've made a move from the north side of town and have renamed uh, and moved, Lord. I just pray that they um, are seeing that it was a good plan and your plan for them. I pray that they are, are enjoying the blessings and the fruit of walking um, in where and how you've guided them, Lord. We just uh, want to entrust that church to you. I want to entrust Kelly to you uh, and Kelly's family uh, First of all, I pray that his marriage would be blessed. I pray that you would guard uh, his marriage from some of the rigors and the expectations that some folks have on their pastors, Lord, that he would, um, that his wife and his family would get his first and his best, and that he would, uh, in that, uh, have ample um, shepherding, ample ministry, ample love for the bride at um, the church at River Oaks. Lord, we pray that they, uh, in this move, that they've been able to connect to some families uh, that they may not have been able to connect to. And we pray that you are giving them great problems of parking and seating and uh, kid space and things like that, Lord. Just entrusting them to you. I'm thankful for the opportunity to lift them up this morning. Uh, Lord, lastly, I just want to turn this time over to you and pray that you would guide us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Wouldn't it be cool if we had scary music to give us a heads up when we're in danger? I was thinking about that this week and thinking about how nice it would be. You know, think about the movie Jaws. When I was a kid, Jaws came out and Jaws was terrifying. I've seen glimpses, you know, little shots of it, little pieces of it now, and I don't know what I was so afraid of because the cinematography and all that was just like this robot shark you know I don't know what scared me but the music I think had a large part to play in it y'all probably know that that's that that whole um, music I I think the music would be helpful as we're doing life where we would have some sense that before we round that corner or before we get in that car we could hear that ominous scary music and unlike the people in the movies who actually go ahead and do all that that we would actually not do it that we would not get in the water if we heard Jaws music. We would not get in that car if we heard the music. And just like the music would alert us to the danger, it would be handy when you didn't hear it, you could have the sense that you were safe. In the absence of the music, you would feel safe. No music, you're okay. Ominous, scary Jaws music, you're about to die if you continue on with whatever you're about to do. The nature of today's message is, I think, going to alert you to the reality that for the Christian, doing life together in the church, which I would 
<laughs> I would call those synonymously or synonymous. Um, I would almost call those Siamese twins. They have to go together. That the music is always playing. I think this message is going to help you see the reality that for the Christian, the music is always playing. We as the people of God are always in harm's way to some degree. We have a very real adversary that is always working offensively to devour us and devour churches, frankly. Even if you don't hear the music, what I hope you'll see over the course of the morning is that God's word says that it's playing. So maybe through the exposition of God's word in these next few minutes, we'll turn up the volume and that possibly hearing it may help you from rounding a corner that you shouldn't. And possibly hearing it may keep you from getting in the water when you shouldn't and falling away from the faith, ultimately. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. I'd like to begin there and sort of unpack a little bit, just contextualize our morning. We're going to be spending most of our time in verse 14 this morning, but I want to begin in verse 11 for the sake of context. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Last week, we spent the majority of our time on verse 12 laboring over, if you were here, I'm glad that some of y'all are back because I was kind of worried that some of y'all may not come back after last week's adventure, we'll call it, um, laboring over punctuation, that punctuation matters. And what we wrestled with last week was where do we place the punctuation in verse 12? Last week, if, if you remember, your Bibles likely read the way this slide reads, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Last week, over the course of the message, you can go ahead and put that next slide up, I offered through exposition and through word meanings and I think through contextualizing some phrases this different rendering of the passage. And you should also know that it's not unholy or ungodly for you to make some marks in your Bible. It'd be very fitting for you to put a little comma right there after saints and maybe even to write over the word equip the word perfect or maybe even the word complete. Contextually, what we considered last week is that there are four gifts given to the church. The apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, and the pastor teacher. And last week we considered that the apostle and prophet are extinct. They're characteristic of the early church, unique to the time of the early church, but that now in the church that we have as human gifts given to the church, the evangelist and the pastor teacher. And that the evangelist and pastor teacher has, from verse 12, three jobs. A job of perfecting the saints or completing the saints. That's a tall order and one that might make people swallow hard. It makes me swallow hard. I like the word equipping better because it sounds a little bit more like a coach. But we considered last week that considering that word meaning in Greek, that perfect and complete might be a better word choice. And that placing that comma right there changes the meaning of the passage. From I no longer have the role as a gift given to the church. Okay, let's all have a sense of humor about this. I no longer have the role as a gift given to the church of coaching you to do a bunch of ministry works. But if we place that comma there, then I instead have the responsibility of perfecting and completing you. How? Through this next phrase. Through the work of ministry. And we considered last week that that work of ministry, contextually, would be the ministry of the word. The thing the gifts given to the church do teaching and preaching and that the beautiful effect of that would be in the third phrase there the building up of the body of Christ and it would also be the third charge that the gift given to the church has 
If somebody's looking for a job description for a local pastor, this would be a nice place to go. If you're shopping for a church home and you want to know what you want to know what to expect of your pastor, or if you're here and you don't want to what, you know want to know what to expect of your pastor, these are, are are some good things you should expect of your pastor. Is that he is about the work of perfecting the saints? That he has a high view of that. That he's not just a coach. He's not a life coach. It's bigger and it's deeper and it's stronger than that. And then secondly, he is about the work of ministry and specifically the. I think that. The and the work being singular points to the reality that contextually this is speaking of the ministry of the word. That homeboy better be about the ministry of the word. That yes, maybe he has some time to visit a sick person in the hospital. That's a good thing. But if you as the church are expecting your pastor to spend his days visiting the sick and the ailing and the needy, then he's not going to be about the ministry of the word. He's not going to be preparing hearty sermons that are going to perfect and complete the saints. He's likely going to have a little lame ditty on Sunday morning that won't, it'll be like a tic-tac compared to what you really need. Okay? And the third thing in the job description is that that pastor, teacher, and the evangelist are about building up and edifying the body of Christ. A great job description for a pastor. And look at that next passage, verse 13. The beauty when this pastor, teacher, and the evangelist, this human gift given to the churches, that the beauty is that when they're doing their job, is that there's going to be a mature manhood that takes place, a maturing that takes place in the body as a whole and as individuals who sit under that teaching and preaching. That maturing happens. And that we eventually in time, mature to the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's a beautiful story that we developed last week. It's very important and quite beautiful. I thought, uh, I thought I'd share this passage with you from Colossians chapter 1. This is Paul speaking, I think, about his burden as a gift given to the church. Listen to what Paul said. Him we proclaim, he's speaking of Christ. This could be Paul's job description. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone here ministry of the word with all wisdom that in order that so that we may present everyone mature in Christ we might help you kind of round out that image as a beautiful bride not some old homely little old thing that would be an embarrassment when Christ gets back but that him we proclaim, him we teach, him we warn, or we warn people, and we are teaching with all wisdom so that we may present a beautiful bride, a mature church that's ready for Christ's return. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Man, it's a beautiful burden. It's one that I read and I have a visceral connection to it, especially after what we're seeing in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, <laughs> I was thinking I ought to share this. I, I, um, last week, sometimes I have a feeling after a morning's message, after I go home, I'm like, I kind of overbaked it. You know, sometimes I have that feeling like I kind of overpressed something, you know, like overcooked something a little bit. And I kind of had that feeling last week a little bit. Now, it doesn't mean I'm always right. I'm not about to apologize for something. I'll do that sometimes, but I'm not about to do that right now. I had that feeling when I got home last Sunday, and I asked Christy. I said, Christy, did I kind of over-bake it, over-press it? Did I over-preach it? And she said, no, I don't think so, not at all. And, and then over the course of the week, I had some interesting conversations with folks, folks asking about why the emphasis, why such emphasis. It almost seemed like it might have been corrective. You want to emphasize something that's corrective, right? If a church is wayward and... Preacher has the role of guiding people back into it. And I even used the language that it was going to be a course correction at the beginning of the message. So I understand the questions. I had someone else ask me, and I'll just tell you who it is. It's a guy that watches my back. Mine and Scott's more than anybody in this body is Brad Cardwell. And Brad asked me, he said, hey, I just want to make sure you're not feeling under underappreciated. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, that wasn't what that was about. But I was glad he asked because he does watch our back, our backs. But it wasn't about feeling underappreciated. The emphasis wasn't about me at all last week. Last week, the burden and the emphasis 
on the importance of teaching and preaching and the role of the gifts given to the church. Even before you get to verse 14, I hope you can see the importance of it. That the human gift given to the church is about perfecting the saints and completing the saints and doing the work of ministry and building up the body of Christ so that we together are a mature people ready for Christ's return. Beautiful, not homely. Man, that's reason enough for some emphasis that even before you get to verse 14, it seems to be what God is using to mature the bride, the human gifts given to the church, the evangelist and pastor teacher. What God or who God has given to the bride and what God has given to the bride, what that evangelist and pastor teacher bring to the bride, the teaching and preaching and ministry of the word. I would argue that you won't find a mature Christian who doesn't highly value and count, I would offer this, count as essential the teaching and preaching of God's word, what those human gifts bring. I would argue that you will not find a mature Christian who doesn't highly value the teaching and preaching of God's word. And I would offer this even further. You won't find a mature church that somehow matured apart from the teaching and preaching of God's word. It is his design. It's how he's set up this whole thing of how the church is to be ready for Christ's return. So why so emphatic? I think the ministry of the word brought by the human gifts given to the church is not to be just another voice in the den of the crowd. The teaching and preaching that's brought to the local church by the gifts given to the local church is not just to be another voice in the crowd. It is the voice that God is using to ready his church for Christ's return. And let me take it even a step further. And this might bump into some folks here this morning. It may not. You may already be there and it might be affirming. It is the voice by which all other voices are tested and interpreted. The teaching and preaching of the word at your local church. Yes, warp and woof, real people, smelly Greg, no, Melvin, smelly Melvin, Harry Melvin is what we, right here. Remember that from a few weeks ago? Talking right here, talking about real life. That is where we hear this fidelity of of a voice and a message that helps us interpret all others. All others that we hear on Facebook, all others that we hear on the news, all others that we hear at school, all others that kids hear met, all others that you hear at school, all others that some of you kids that go off to college will hear in college. It's crazy the stuff that people are entertaining in college. It's like Lord of the Flies. A bunch of kids get together and they try and define what is truth. Man, let me tell you right now, young people who are heading off in that direction. The teaching and the preaching of the word is to be the voice by which all other voices are tested and interpreted. And I'm not just saying that because I'm the one speaking this morning. I'm saying it because that's what this passage is saying. It is how the church is matured and readied for Christ's return. If that wasn't reason enough to be emphatic, verse 14 is. And that's where we're going to go in these next few minutes. And here, let me give you a little plan. I'm going to do a little bit of work, some work to sort of unpack and explore verse 14. We're just going to explore what's going on in there. And then I'm going to have three takeaways for you. There are many more possibilities, but I'm just going to offer you three takeaways. Okay, so let's just climb into this passage and explore it. Verse 14. And I'm going to give you just a summary of the other verses. The human gifts given to the church... To grow it to maturity are so that, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Okay, here's the main 
chunks in that passage, and we're going to explore more. But first of all, there's something called a henna clause. If you stick around here long enough, you're going to hear the henna clauses pointed out. Henna is the Greek word for that word that's translated there, so that. It's a, it's a purpose clause. It's in order that. It's for the purpose of, so that. These human gifts have been given to the church in order that, so that we may no longer be children. And then he describes what it would be like to be a child that's subject to what he says there in a moment as being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Sounds a lot like a shipwreck. And I don't know of anybody in the world who's more of an expert than Paul at being in a shipwreck. Don't ever get on a ship with Paul, ever. You're going to hear the ominous music playing. You're going to die. Okay, these gifts given to the church are so that we may no longer be children in those moments before carried around on a ship, carried around leading up into shipwreck by every wind of doctrine that blows in, every wind of opinion and thought and what someone might call doctrine, by every human cunning. The word there in Greek is, describes like the, the, these guys that played with dice. And they were loaded dice, like they were weighted in the direction to where they're always going to win. That there's actually the sense there of an agency to it and an intentionality that I'm going to fool you. That we're not going to be carried about and tossed about like a shipwreck that's, or something leading up to a ship, shipwreck by every wind of doctrine that blows in, by human cunning or by craftiness in deceitful schemes. This word craftiness is the same word that Paul uses elsewhere to speak of what happened to Eve. He says, as the servant or as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, it's the same word, craftiness. And you get the sense from this passage, there's a lot going on in there, and it is quite dangerous. I hope you might be hearing a little bit of music right now, but let's explore it. The Henna Clause, first of all, explains the effect of the human gifts, the evangelist and pastor teacher doing the ministry of the word. There are two outcomes. We're just exploring the first outcome this week. The second outcome or the second result that's behind that purpose clause, we're going to consider Sunday after next. And that's in verses 15 and 16. And I would encourage you, read ahead and study ahead and try and figure out what it is. It'll bring out a beautiful time in the word for you two weeks from now when we preach that. But this so that, this purpose clause, this in order that, is that we, the church, may no longer be children. What's wrong with being a child? Let's just talk about that for a minute. Is there anything in the world wrong with being a child? Nothing. I'll just say this right now. Children in, in here, there's nothing wrong with you. You be a child. It's awesome being a child. There's nothing wrong with being a child if you're supposed to be one. <laughs> right? If you're not supposed to be a child, if you're a grown-up, then being a child is not cool. Being a child is great, though. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Children are great if you're supposed to be one. But it's not okay to be a child or to be childish when you're 32. Okay, happy birthday. Or when you're 49. It's not cool then to be a child. It's not only not okay, it is in fact annoying. Let me just share a passage with you from a guy that sounds kind of annoyed. He's the Hebrews preacher and he's writing to his church. For some reason he's not there anymore so he's writing a letter to them. And the letter of the book of Hebrews is really in some ways a sermon. He's preaching to them through a letter. And here's what he says to this church. You can almost hear a little bit of annoyance in there. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since some of you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. He's using it in a derogatory sense there. He says solid food is for the mature For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil, you ought to be eating solid food right now, but you're still nursing, is what he's saying. Christy and I had this friend out in South Carolina that 
I'm like, she, Christy told me, you're going to get in trouble with this. And I said, you know, I'll just ask for forgiveness. Or not. I might not even ask for forgiveness, but I might get in trouble. This gal, she nursed her kid till the kid was like five. The kid was like old enough to ask for it. Moo moo. You know, I need moo moo. If a kid's old enough to remember, I'm just going to say, moms, uh, respectfully, maybe it's time to consider some vitamin D, milk, whole milk, something. Golly, it's just possibility that you can be on milk for too long. You can be childish. That's the sense that he's using here in a negative sense. The ministry of the word delivered by the human gifts given to the church that's heard and heeded by the church will mean that you won't stay children. That's the good news. You won't stay children. A couple things. First of all, it implies that there is a natural starting place. For a new believer, we should consider them child or children. They have a, almost a, a childlike faith that's somewhat vulnerable. It's a natural starting place for a new believer. But it's not an okay place to stay forever because children are vulnerable, because children are easily fooled. Go ahead and put that slide up, Casey. This was just a funny slide for me because I... The little dude's mouth is just too much, you know. I mean, he just breaks all the cuteness barriers there. It's just beyond cute. But, man, isn't it fun fooling kids? That's the best part of being a parent. Golly, I mean, that's... Who knew that this was the treat of being a parent, that you could just fool them and they're so gullible? And No, it's not a plane. Man, it's fun telling your kids crazy stories and letting them marvel, even if they're not true. When I was growing up, we had a, a, a lady that worked. You can take that slide down. It's just brief. I don't want you all to get distracted with that. When I was growing up, I was, um, my mom and dad worked together. My dad's a veterinarian or was a veterinarian. He's retired now. And my mom worked with my dad. And uh, we had a lady that stayed with us in our home. She cooked dinner for us, and she cleaned, and she sort of tended to us, especially during the summers when we weren't in school. Her name was Nettie, one of the finest ladies I've ever known. She was an amazing woman. Nettie Sargent, and um, Nettie fooled us for years as kids growing up. We would fight, you know, I, I was the middle of two brothers, so I was always in one of the fights. I was either fighting with the older brother or the younger brother. The oldest and the youngest never fought. I was always in the middle of it. So I was in all, this happened to me so often that it's very familiar to me, where Nettie would threaten, with, threaten us with, I'm going to call Doc if y'all don't stop. And of course, you know, as we're little kids, we're like, okay, we better stop because we don't want Dad to find out that we were fighting. So we'd keep it on, you know, or it would, it would start up again, and she would threaten, I'm going to call Doc. I'm going to threaten, or she'd threaten again, I'm going to call Doc. And eventually it got to the point where she'd pick up the phone. And by then we're like, no, Nettie, don't call Doc, or don't call Dad, please. Well, then it would get beyond that where she would eventually start dialing the number, and then we would appeal to her yet again. But then eventually she got to the point where she's talking to our dad. Okay? Hey, Doc. The boys are fighting, and we're like, Nettie, please, no. And she'd say, oh, okay. And she'd hang up on him. All right, and those little kids, man, that worked for years. <laughs> Dad would come home from work, and I'm kind of watching what's going to happen when Dad comes in the door. Is he going to turn to Nettie and say, Nettie, why did you hang up on me? What was that all about? That never happened. And finally, we were like talking between one another, and my younger brother Andy said, Hey, uh, next time that happens, I'm gonna go get on the phone and see what's actually happening. <laughs> so it turns out she was dialing our own number, and it was a busy signal, and it worked for years because we were so gullible. Children are so easily fooled. Childish Christians are easily fooled. Childish, immature churches are easily fooled. But the outcome, this is the good news, the outcome of the evangelist and pastor teacher doing their jobs of the ministry of the word means that we, the church, won't be gullible and won't be fooled by every wind of doctrine that blows in by every human cunning, people throwing loaded dice at us, just out to fool us. And by every 
crafty, deceitful schemes. I hope you're recognizing those are active agents. Those are things that are after you and after the church. They're not inactive. They are after you. But maybe you don't hear the music yet. I just have a couple passages I'd like for you to turn to this morning. Uh, the first, um, actually you can listen to this passage, and I'll, I'll just share it with you. But it's in Galatians chapter 1. If you'd like to turn there, you can. I don't want to discourage that at all. But I'm going to read the passage if I can find it. This will give you a minute. Maybe you ought to turn there since I'm looking for it. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Maybe you don't hear the music yet. Maybe you feel like you're in sort of a quiet stretch and you don't see the danger yet. This is just kind of overbaked maybe a little bit. and There's no wind of doctrine that you're being threatened with. There's nobody rolling loaded dice at you. Uh, no schemes that you're aware of. Um, let me just share this little pa uh, passage with you from the book of Galatians. I enjoy the Galatians because the Galatians are my people. These are the early Gauls. This is where the Scotch-Irish came from, the Galatians. I mean, I would hope that a, a good Irishman is not going to be fooled by anything, but this is the church that is the epitome of being fooled. They are the go-to people for a church that's been fooled, and actually the word that's used is bewitched. Listen to what happens here in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul writes to this church, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So they distort it and present it as gospel, but it's not one after all. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let me see how far I wanted to read. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now here's what Paul's marveling about. Paul planted the church here in Galatia about 47 AD. Okay, The book of Galatians was written, or the letter was written about 48 AD. I mean, it's almost like the fall. Some people believe the fall happened on the first day of creation, where, or the first day where the humans were created. <laughs> Who bewitched you so quickly, so fooled you so easily? But you have to consider, though, if they were born, if the church was born in 47 AD in Galatia, the church was babies. And the church together, even corporately, was a baby. And they were fooled. They were bewitched. This childish church. There's hardly a book or a letter after the Gospels that doesn't give airtime to false teaching, the effect of false teaching, either responding to it, reacting to it faithfully, or preparing for it when it's coming. Not if it comes, but when it comes. There's hardly a book after the Gospels that doesn't deal with it. Second Peter calls it. Paul, or Peter identifies it in 2 Peter chapter 2 as something. He says, man, it, it's coming. False teachers are coming to your churches if they're not there already. All over the Roman Empire, he makes this promise. And he calls them, I think it's interesting, he calls them waterless streams. These false teachers have lots of promise, but man, they don't deliver. Jude is another one that wrote about it. And interestingly enough, this is about 60 AD. It's about a... About the same time that Peter is writing his second letter, Jude is writing his little short one-chapter letter. Jude, the brother of Jesus, about 60 A.D., also throughout his one-page letter deals with false teaching. And he identifies the false teacher, what, what Jude calls him, the brother of Jesus. He calls the false teacher hidden reefs. Man, some of y'all are like water guys and boat guys and you can imagine what that sailor types or fishing types and you can know what that imagine what that'd be like you're going full throttle across what looks like this glass and before you know it your transom is ripped out and you're sinking that's what Jude said it's a, like hidden reefs looks like everything's going to be okay and then you're toast turn to Acts chapter 20 
I really only have two more passages for you to turn to, and this is one of those passages, but this is one I just want to spend just a few moments on, Acts chapter 20. What I want you to hear and see in these next few minutes is that ominous danger music is playing all over the New Testament. It's playing all over the New Testament. It is a theme. Now let me give you a little bit of context about what I'm about, for what I'm about to read here in Acts chapter 20. The letter to the Ephesians was written about 62 A.D. Okay? Interesting that it's around the same time that I just mentioned Jude and Peter are writing those letters dealing with false teaching. And here Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, is talking about every wind of doctrine, every cunning scheme, the craftiness of people coming in with these false teachings. It's a problem in the church then. Okay, so he writes this letter in 62 AD. Now this conversation takes place about 10 years before that with the Ephesian elders. Paul is going to have a conversation, a one-on-one, not one-on-one, a in-person conversation with the elders of the Ephesian church 10 years before he writes this letter to them. And listen to what he says in this conversation, beginning in verse 28. To the Ephesian elders, okay, let me help you sort of connect that. To the gifts given to the church at Ephesus, the pastor teachers, he says this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know, is what he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He didn't say maybe. He didn't say, hey, guys, this might happen. He said, I know this is going to happen. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, you elders, you pastor teachers, you human gifts given to the church at Ephesus, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you guys, you pastor teachers, you elders of the church at Ephesus, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And I I hope hope maybe reading slow enough there that you were able to recognize that the protection of the Ephesian church was dependent on the faithfulness of the elders. As the shepherd goes, so go the sheep. And he's speaking to the shepherds of the church at Ephesus here. And he said, man, you are their protection. Wolves, not might come. Wolves are coming and they are going to eat your lunch if you're not attentive to it. Wolves are coming. And he says to them, interestingly enough, He says, I commend you to God, and I commend you to the word of his grace. Man, the word of his grace sounds a lot like the ministry of the word. Man, that's a pretty heavy passage. Did you hear the music playing? Something crazy must have gone on over here. We'll just... Did you hear the music playing? Man, it's a dangerous dangerous work being the church there's some ancient casualties i'd like to introduce you to just a couple this is the last place i think i'm having you turn let me make sure yeah last place i'm having you turn first timothy one first timothy one it's interesting that all these guys are like contemporaries of one another we read our new testaments and we see all these people in different places and we think it's this big broad crazy story that is over you know hundreds and thousands of years, and the New Testament is really a small story. It's funny when I hear Christy talk with with Luke and Evan trying to make sense of um, what is the book you're reading, Brandon? Count of Monte Cristo. You can tell the, the the reader expert that I am. I forgot what they're reading. The Count of Monte Cristo. If you've ever read it before, it's like this huge, massive book. I haven't read it, but I've seen it. It's heavy. You know, anytime I want to press out a 
a maple leaf or something, that's what I'm grabbing is the amount of, kind of, amount of Monte Cristo. Well, Christy's having conversations with Luke and Evan trying to figure out, now, who's this guy or who's this gal and how's this story pieced together? The New Testament can feel like that, but you need to realize it's kind of a small group of people. These are all contemporaries of one another. And it took place over a really small period of time and not over a huge space geographically. These guys were contemporaries. Timothy is a contemporary of the Ephesian elder. Tim- Timothy was a pastor in Ephesus. We're all talking about stories that are all intertwined and people that are all intertwined. And listen to what happens here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. Paul is writing a letter to Timothy. He says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. And that's not in a derogatory sense, mind you. That's in a you are my um, apprentice sort of sense. You are my understudy sense. I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Paul is appealing back to his ordination where prophecies were made about him. This guy is going to be an evangelist planting the church. Very important moment that he's referring back to. And he's telling him, go wage the good warfare. Wage what was prophesied about you. Go do your work. Do your work. Holding faith and good conscience. By rejecting this, now I like to circle words in my Bible when they're important, and I think the word this is important. By rejecting this, because this may either point back to faith or a good conscience or to the good warfare that Timothy waged. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Interesting word choice there, considering how he describes or how he describes being carried away by false teaching over there in Ephesians 4. Some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's shorthand or another way of saying that he that they have gone through the church discipline process. Some of you heard about church discipline. That's what happened to Alexander and Hymenaeus. They made shipwreck of their faith. These are ancient casualties. They departed from the this. Now, whether the this is just speaking of faith and good conscience or whether it's speaking and including Timothy's work of the warfare that he did, I believe it's the latter. They rejected that. They rejected the central teaching of the gospel and made shipwreck of their faith and became um, objects of church discipline. Man, I want, I want you to appreciate and see and realize that there are dangerous messages and dangerous people in the church and they have been in the church and among us for 2,000 years. Alexander and Hymenaeus are a couple of examples who actually ended up being Casualties. It's not just an ancient problem that we read about in our New Testament and say, man, I sure am glad we don't deal with any of that stuff now. That'd be foolish. It's a 2,000-year-old problem. It's as old as the church. And they are active agents. And that's what Alexander and Hymenaeus were. Active agents that are rolling loaded dice. Actively pursuing you. Actively scratching, itching ears for 2,000 years. And Alexander and Hymenaeus are a great example of some ancient casualties. You may not hear the music yet, but if you've been here for 14 years, like I have, like Scott has, like Brad has, like some of the others among you, you know that the music is played here too, and we've had some casualties. Show me a church that hadn't had any casualties, and I'll show you, uh, I I don't know, like heaven? Because it's not going to happen this side of heaven, where a church doesn't have some casualties. There's a whole chapter in our Bibles that are dedicated to the nature of the kingdom, parables in Matthew 13 that tell us the nature of the kingdom is that there's going to be a back door to the church. Now, we hope and pray as a church that it's really tiny, Then we have this huge front door as people come in and join us. But then this tiny little wee back door as people go out. 
But if you've been here 14 years, you know we have a back door as people have gone out of it. People that looked just like you right now. 14 years ago, 10 years ago, 6 years ago, that didn't have, they weren't wearing like Sam Cobra outfit. Y'all know who Sam Cobra is? I might be dating myself. Right, Sam Cobra was a, a bad guy back in the days, like Johnny West and those guys. They don't have a look on their face like, man, I'm out of here. I can't wait to, to ravage you guys. They look just like you within the last 14 years, but they're gone. Man, the music is playing. It's been playing at Cross Point Fellowship in the last 14 years. Some left. This will be interesting to you. You may not know this. You may not realize this. Some left before they ever started. You know, some of y'all um, are visiting this morning. You, you may not know this, but those of you who are members with us, you know that there's a membership process. And in part of that membership process, we make an effort, either Brad or Scott or I, make an effort to get to know you. And we answer your questions, and we want you to get to know us too. But part of what we're doing too is trying to discern, are you a wolf? Do you know we do that? Does that make you uncomfortable? What ought to make you uncomfortable would be the notion of us not doing that. You know, in the last 14 years, I can count it maybe on one hand. I've met with people that in that process of membership, so you, need to, you need to look for another church. Or ideally, if, if I find out what that church is or who that church is, I'm going to call them and tell them your bad news. I hope you expect that of me and Brad and Scott. I hope you believe that these passages tell us that the music's playing, even in the church, even in a good church. There's no such, church, no such thing as a church that's immune to this. So some have left before they ever really even got started. Um... Blowing in with windy doctrines is what they were doing. And I said, nope. Brad or Scott said, nope, not here. Ideally, not anywhere. But sure enough, not here. Some were casualties among us as they joined. I was going to drink some of this. Some were casualties among us in the last 14 years as they joined Alexander and Hymenaeus. In the process of church discipline. Not a lot. Some of y'all that are visitors or new members are like, uh-oh, am I on the bubble? Am I in trouble? No, we're not. We're not like that. But there's a small, small group of people over the last 14 years that have joined Alexander and Hymenaeus in church discipline. And who were, as this passage says, turned over to Satan. Pushed out of the protective umbrella covering that the church is to take on the full weight of whatever Satan could throw at them. And that we as a church hope and pray that that would bring them to a place of repentance. We have some folks, a small group that were removed from our church for unrepentant sin. And I'm talking about stuff that's just like in your, in your face, talk to the hand, I'm not going to repent. And I'm going to continue on doing whatever I want to do in this matter. Or for their own divisive and cunning schemes, throwing weighted dice. It's happened at Crosspoint Fellowship in the last 14 years. For their own divisive and cunning schemes, wanting a following of their own. It's happened right here. The music's playing. Others joined them in a time shortly afterward or in the period after that, leaving defiled and embittered. Because that's what happens. is a root of bitterness defiles many. The music is playing. And unchecked, what that little story or scenario that I just alluded to you, to you, that some of you know exactly the story I'm talking about, left unchecked, that's what this community would later call a church split. Did you hear what happened at Cross Point Fellowship? They had a split. That's what would have happened had it gone unchecked. The music's playing right here too. 
if you're looking for a church where the music doesn't play, you're going to have to keep looking. Because it plays. Others completely dropped out of the faith. Completely. I went through a months-long process with a guy named Mike. Leading up to the point of what I believed was conversion. I mean, months long. Took, you know, it was not a pray this prayer, let's get you dunked kind of thing. It was like, man, let's really walk through this. Months long. I baptized him on a Sunday. The last time I ever spoke to him was at the end of that worship service where he stood up before the church for everybody to greet him. And I never got a return phone call. Never saw his face ever again. Now, that's a pretty extreme case. But if you've been around here for 14 years or any period of time, you know that we have a back door as people have left that they leave to just go right back to the world. They're like Demas, maybe. One of Paul's teammates that left the ministry alongside Paul because it says that he fell in love with the world. Man, it's happened at Cross Point Fellowship. The music is playing. There are people that have completely fallen away from the faith altogether. Maybe it began with a sleepy Sunday, or two, or ten, or a season of absence, but it eventually turned into the teaching and preaching of the word became meh. Let me spell that for you, M-E-H, meh, <laughs> meh, I don't need that. Casualties. And for all of these, the teaching and preaching of the word became just another voice in the crowd. Just another voice in the den. Instead of it being all defining, all interpreting, all guiding, all directing, it was traded. And we might even say that they traded the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. We might even say that they traded their birthrights for a bowl of soup. Use whatever imagery you want. The teaching and preaching of the word became, meh, I don't need that. Man, we have our casualties. It's the nature of the kingdom and kingdom work, and it's heartbreaking when you see it happen. But I think we can be wise to this. I think the teaching and preaching of the word can prepare us for this realization that even if you think the music isn't playing, even if you think you're not in danger, you are and will ever be a target. So I have three things to leave with you. And they're brief. First, is in light of this passage, I want to encourage you to not think like a child. It's kind of an obvious thing, isn't it? Not think like a child. Let me just draw this out. You may not have recognized this or noticed this. That In verse 14, the word for child there is not child singular. It's children. And in the verse before, verse 13, when you're sitting under the teaching and preaching of the word, when you're walking in that maturing and equipping thing, what do you become? You become singular, a mature man. You see the contrast in verse 13? A mature man versus in verse 14, children. Man, let me encourage you not to think like a child because it's childlike to think like a bunch of individuals and to move like a bunch of individuals. Yet it's a mark of maturity to walk in unity, thinking with, hearing with, believing with God's people. Man, individualism is a, man, that, that's a priority in our culture. Am I right? And I've been fed a heavy dose of it. I love, I was fed with these Westerns, like, uh, you know, Clint Eastwood. I mean, you didn't need anybody. He's an individual. Uh. Chuck Norris. I mean, anybody, who doesn't like Chuck Norris? He doesn't need the team. He is the team. Right? Man, I love that. There's an innate fear within me and my flesh or my personality. I have this, this terrible fear of being a lemming. 
you know, lemming. I don't even know what a lemming are, but the saying about a lemming, a bunch of lemmings, they just follow one another like a crowd, you know. Just drones, you know. That scares me to death. But don't let that fear keep you from walking with, hearing with, believing with the people of God. Don't let our culture and don't let your personality and don't let maybe what you think would be cool keep you from walking with as a mature people in the unity of the faith as in content and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Being an individual is overrated. The Clint Eastwood movies were movies. Okay, it wasn't real life. The second thing, that's the first thing. Don't think like a child. The second thing, I'll share a passage with you um, from the book of Acts. You can jot this down. It's brief, but it's maybe one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible, and it just makes me laugh every time I read it. It's, it's like UFC. It's like a UFC bout, and it's hilarious. Okay. Acts chapter 19. I got to try and not laugh. All right. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Okay. I'm not, that's not funny. That's not funny part. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Pretty awesome time, what Paul and the apostles are seeing and doing. And then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, how's that for a job description? Hey, man, what do you do for a job? I'm an I'm a itinerant Jewish exorcist. That's what these guys are doing. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits in them. Okay, he's, these itinerant Jewish exorcists are seeing what Paul and the other apostles are accomplishing, and they're like, man, I'm going to invoke the name of Jesus. And Paul, too, for that matter. We're going to get something done with all these, these spirits that are demons that are indwelling people. So these guys show up, and uh, they're saying, I adjure you. This is what they say to somebody who is possessed, these itinerant Jewish uh, exorcists. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, is what they would say to these people that are possessed. <laughs> Oh, it's so funny. All right. So the seven sons of a Jewish high priest, these are the itinerant Jewish, itinerant Jewish exorcists. The seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Okay. So these seven sons, um, oh, okay, in verse 15. But the evil spirit, so they go to this guy that's possessed, and it says, the evil spirit answered them when they invoked the name of Jesus and Paul. And said, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all seven of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. He beat them naked. He beat the clothes off of them. He beat the togas off of them. I mean, you have got to enjoy the humor in that. The seven sons of Sceva show up to get something done, and they're going to invoke the name of Jesus and Paul, and this guy manhandled them, beat them naked. All right, that's a little funny story. It just makes me laugh. But let me just tell you this. If you underestimate your enemy, you're going to have the toga beat off of you. You're going to join the seven sons of Sceva and have it handed to you. If you underestimate the reality that there is a prowling predator, a roaring lion that is seeking someone to devour, that who is on the offensive, who is throwing weighted dice and is after you and your family and your faith and your church, then we'll join the seven sons of Sceva because we underestimated Satan. Man, he loves nothing more than hurting people and hurting Christians and hurting churches. He loves it. But we're on to him. We know better. And we can do the third thing that I'm going to offer to you. The third thing I will encourage you from 1 Timothy chapter 4. It's a passage I'll read. You can jot it down. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 13 
It's sort of the counterpart to the casualty that I read over there with Alexander and Hymenaeus. This is the counterpart. That was the negative version of here's what happened when you jettisoned this. Listen to what happens when you do something different with the this. Chapter 4, verse 13. I'll start in verse 11. Command and teach these things, Timothy. Paul's still writing to Timothy. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, listen to what? Here's the work, Timothy. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, the public reading of Scripture, teaching and preaching. Immerse yourself in them, Timothy, so that all may see your progress. But listen to what he says next. Keep a close watch on yourselves and on the teaching. Persist in this. Persist in those, these things. Persist in the public reading of Scripture, the exhortation and teaching. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's the casualties that bail on the this. But those who persist in it, in the teaching of it, and the preaching of it, and the exposition of it, and persist in the hearing of it, that are saved. So my third encouragement is keep listening to the faithful teaching and preaching of the word. And let me tell you this, it ain't about the person. That's why I can with authority preach this message this morning and say it ain't about me. It's about what I bring. You've given me a job to pour myself into these scriptures between Sundays. To pray over what I'm bringing to you between Sundays. And then... To stand and deliver. And Scott and Brad have the same charge. Man, forget the people. (laughs) It ain't about the person. It's about the goods that they bring. Keep listening. It will mature you. And it will protect you. It will guard you and your family. Practical tips. Pray before Sunday. How about that? Pray before you come to corporate worship. Pray, Lord, somehow in these moments I'm going to spend with your people. Equip me. Let's take it a step further. Perfect me. Complete me. Lord, keep me attentive to where I'm not distracted thinking about changing the oil in my car. That's the kind of stuff I used to get distracted with. Pray. Here's another helpful tip. The the beauty in expository preaching is you know that I'm going to the next verse. (laughs) So you can totally read ahead. You can totally cheat. It's not cheating. Jerry, I saw Jerry yesterday morning. Jerry was so excited to tell me. He said, I read Ephesians 4 this morning. Man, great example. Follow Jerry's lead. Read it before it's preached and see what God does with that. Pray about it. Read it. Show up. That's the next thing that's kind of important. You kind of got a beer. And it's not about roll call. Nobody's checking roll on you. We don't have anybody secretly at the back right now with a roll, roll sheet. Yeah, Kyle. Kyle's back there with a the roll. Check. He's here again. That's not what it's about, man. We don't do head counts. I think we do just for... But it's not for a feather in our cap kind of thing. Man, show up. Make it a priority. Things come up. I get it. Travel, whatever, sickness. But man, if you're able, show up and then seek to walk in it. Seek to walk in it. Let's not make it. It's not rocket surgery. Show up. Pray, read, show up, and then seek to walk in it as families and as life groups. Let me pray. God, we are so thankful for your word, thankful for the spirit that guides us into all truth. Lord, we are thankful for um, what I feel like instead of being course correcting is course affirming in these last couple of weeks. 
course refining. Um, God, I'm thankful that this is not a corrective message for a church that's wayward. It's an affirming message for a church that's listening. God, what a, what a blessing. What a blessing that you've given us in this Ephesians 4 passage. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'll share a passage with you from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. Uh, this for our supper. Paul writing to the church in Corinth, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I know y'all are kind of getting situated for supper and all, and that's totally cool. You got kids and all, but try and engage this passage. I think it's a nice, um, a nice place not only to prepare us for our supper, but a nice response to the sermon that we just heard. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to, as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? That word participation is fellowship. This is no small thing that we're about to do. We are fellowshipping with the blood and the broken body of Christ in this. And he says, because there is one bread. We who are many, a bunch of individuals, are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. As we take one meal together, the supper, we hear one message and a teaching and preaching that is a, a, a fueling and directing meal.